everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and surprise, 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 I'm joined with Jason on an off week, on, on, a, on a Wednesday. We don't normally post a podcast, but we had a very special little conversation with someone. We, we thought we'd give him his own episode. Jason. Do, yes, it, this feels very funny. Yeah. We're in we're in unusual circumstances today. Mm-hmm. And yet here we are trying it on for size. Well, we've done it before. We've done it with April Fools podcasts and so. with the good uh, Megan Murdoch talking with her about the vodka that that she makes. Very much so. And uh, we thought, you know what? Let's throw caution to the wind. Let's do another one. Yeah, in our last episode, we had a wonderful conversation with John Glazer. Uh-huh. Yes. And he would occasionally throw the, the floor open to the wonderful James Saxon. Mm-hmm. But we hadn't really spent any time getting to know the wonderful James Saxon. And so we thought, okay, let's give him his own half episode and we can get to know this man who is now in charge mm-hmm. of blending compass box. Is he in charge? He is not, but I really like the sound of that. <laughs> Did you just promote James? Like, does John know? Uh, he's, he will know if he listens to this half episode. Um, to, to put it more accurately, he is... Okay. James Saxon is one of the blenders of Compass Box. But he's the CEO of Compass Box Delicious <laughs> Whiskey now. He, he is John Glazer's boss, and nobody <laughs> talks about him being such. Only our podcast has the truth. Oh, listeners, do not share this misinformation with anyone. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Joshua. Yeah. We spent time getting the truth to these questions mm-hmm. from James Saxon himself. Yeah. Instead of us trying to string this together, should we allow James to speak for himself? James, speak for yourself. Okay, so we're lucky enough to be sitting here in London at Compass Box with James Saxon. Wonderful, wonderful supporter of One Nation Under Whiskey. Also, uh, a good whiskey friend uh, mm-hmm. of mine and yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, first time you and I met James was November 2011. I was or trying was to think it, about or this. Or was it as well. 2009? I think it might be 2010. <laughs> so split the difference. I, I, think, I think you and I first met waiting for a delayed flight to Wick. That's exactly uh, it. In Edinburgh Airport. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, were you on the same yeah. group with him? Yep. Going, oh, yep. okay. Yep. Yeah, so so was James one. was Scotch Odyssey yeah. blog. Yes, yes. The cyclist who biked from distillery to distillery in all weather, up all hills and down all dales. Some some hills I passed off. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to get there. I don't like their whiskey. No, no, no. <laughs> but that, that was kind of the first time you'd 
placed your stamp on the whiskey world. Am I correct in saying that? Absolutely, yeah. I got into whiskey in 2007, um, thanks to uh, my mum and a holiday in Speyside. And then, as happens with quite a few things for me, once it becomes an interest, it quickly becomes an obsession. <laughs> and then I, uh, Michael Jackson's Malt Whiskey Companion, fifth edition, that was my first whiskey book. And Michael Jackson talked so eloquently and, and sort of enticingly about this this notion of terroir in whiskey and so I'd been a cyclist for a lot longer and wanted to combine visiting distilleries in Scotland with with cycling um, reasoning that you are exposed to all weathers so so this this mythical sea spray on Isla or you know the gentle uh, sun dappled woods of Speyside does that really come through and um, yeah, I think my blog isn't up anymore, but the conclusion was uh, it's it's tenuous. Let's put it that way. But, uh, <laughs> I certainly enjoyed myself. Well, something else we have in common, my blog is no longer up either. Yeah. So <laughs> here we are. Um, so you you participated in the, the conversation we had with John uh, earlier, but there's clearly something missing in how James Saxon got from Scotch Odyssey to blending at Compass Box. So we just wanted to sit down with you and have a, a little chat about what happened in the meantime. Yeah. I, I, I know there was, St Andrews was involved and the Water of Life Society was involved. Quake Society, yep. yep. We, a, we, we called ourselves the Quake. So Edinburgh. Water of Life, Edinburgh, Water of Life Uni, is Edinburgh, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fuck that up. Okay. <laughs> so you're the Quake at St Andrews. See, I didn't even know that. Yep. Okay. I don't know if they still go by that now. Okay. Uh, Did you head that up? Yeah, I, I got into the Quake in my first year at university and then second year, um, well, first into second year, they hold an AGM and new committee position. So I went into um, vice president of that, which basically involved me reaching out to people in the whiskey industry and mm. saying, please come and give your whiskey for free to <laughs> 60 uh, mostly students, um, which I think was an easier pitch back then. <laughs> it sounds tenuous now, but it was an easier pitch back then than it is now. Um, and so I would... Um, source people for for one of those semesters so um oh god this is 2011 now i can't really remember but i do remember approaching john and we got a tasting in in the diary and then for whatever reason it had to be cancelled so Ugh. uh yeah we, we we passed um but it was at the voice society that i first encountered john in compass box so so it does have a role to play there and then yeah i became uh, I, I led it in my last two years i uh, didn't want to in my very last year but nobody else stood up <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, uh, come to the end of my degree, um, I was working in uh, the Old Course Hotel, their whiskey bar up on the third floor, uh, the Roadhole Bar, which had about 270 whiskies. Um, their USP at the time um, <laughs> wasn't quite accurate because some of the distilleries were quite hard to get hold of and would be very popular when they came in, but they tried to have a bottle from every distillery. Okay. So some, some people go on, on right. sheer number, some have a very curated selection, and we tried to have at least one from every distillery. And it's, uh, I've not been for a few years, but beautiful place to work and, and some really interesting guests. Um, and so that got me into cocktails, actually. Um, and I think that was quite important when Shivers Brothers started their graduate program um, in 2014. So I'd been working at the Whiskey Bar, making some cocktails. I'd spent two weeks working here with, with John and the team um, at Compass Box. The, the graduate program came up and I went for it and didn't know where around the world I would be sent to, to be amb an ambassador for Shivers Brothers products, but um, ended up being Dubai in the Middle East. Um, so that was... That was how I got from writing a blog to working in whiskey. So that started after my graduation. 
Um, spent two years in the Middle East, um, encouraging all manner of people to uh, to drink Scotch whiskey. Turns out for Chivas Brothers, uh, well, Chivas Regal especially, not a challenge. Uh, a massive, okay. massive brand out there. Oh, um, right. And uh, yeah, after two years, I was basically asked by um, our managers who wanted to obviously place us in the company after the graduate program, where would you want to go? And we were all chatting about this. Uh, oh, well, I'd love to do another year abroad in, in this part of the world, says one. And um, uh, I want to work in London on the marketing side. And I was the only one holding his hand up and saying, I'd quite like to actually help make the stuff if that's possible. <laughs> turns out I was the only one who asked to do that. So um, fortunately, um, the team up in, in Dumbarton said, yeah, we'll, we'll give them a go. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, spent uh, a year kind of on a probationary contract as a sample room uh, technician, which has a lot of the same responsibilities as now. I, mean, I was um, quality control for everything that was being blended and created on site, um, helping create samples for new products that yeah. marketing were after. So sampling from the warehouses and, and creating it to near enough bottling spec with the, the, the kit we had in there. Um, and uh, yeah, every so often I got a chance to to spend time with some consumers and and other people within Pernod Ricard, and and that was really fun. Uh, and then yeah, John John gave me the call, um, and we were I, able to work something out. I feel like you've taken off in the whiskey industry like a bloody rocket. <laughs> do do you get that sense of how much you've achieved in a very short period of time? Like how long ago did you graduate? Uh, 2014. Right. Yeah. Well, it, we are in 2020 now, and obviously everyone was doing the the decade retrospective. And yeah, for me, it was it was quite a dizzying scenario because the moment I found out about Compass Box was the moment I got on board with that mission. And I know for people that that love Compass Box, that there is an attachment there because sure. they, they love the bottles, they love what's in them, they love how they look, and they love the perspective, the point of view. I think that that we we have on whiskey, and I was no different. So leaving university <laughs> ultimately wanting to work for compass box but at the time i was i was looking at them and the people they were hiring you know they had a track record that they'd done distribution or or branding or or you know greg glass was here for for over 10 years and and i was like i i just don't feel i've got the the experience to to get there yet but i'll keep plugging away and john and i would exchange emails every so often so to to be working for Compass Box now at the end of that decade, wow, yeah. um, uh, it, it is quite um, quite remarkable. So, so I want to, and sorry, Joshua, for wow. taking that's, over here. That's fine. My, I'm wearing steel-toed shoes, so <laughs> step on my toes all you like. I, 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 there's three things I want from you, James. Go easy. <laughs> I feel like a genie. <laughs> <laughs> he just has to rub you the right way. I knew that was coming. Yeah. <laughs> That's what, no. Um, number one, I hear Dubai and I hear Scotch and I feel for us in the West, Dubai doesn't do alcohol. So please talk to that. Uh, number two, you're a, a, a young man at Shivas in a laboratory seemingly with a lot of responsibility. Talk a little bit about what you were doing there. I know you just said like quality control and stuff, but what was that like in a day-to-day -day for you? And then number three, a few more leaves on the branches of Compass Box work. And if you can cover that in 15 minutes, you will be uh, 
a scholar and a gentleman. I will, I will do my best. So Dubai, I had the same um, reaction. As I say, when we were being interviewed, we had vague ideas about which markets we might end up in. I didn't have French or Spanish, so I knew I wasn't going to be going to South America <laughs> or France. Um, Sydney... How was your Arabic? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the funny thing. I thought... A, a, a friend of mine on the scheme, uh, she was like, oh, you know, I've got a, an Arabic grammar I can give you. And honestly, Hindi would have been a much better language to learn. Ah, um, interesting. I, I spent much more of my time um, speaking to uh, consumers and bar staff from the subcontinent, um, especially India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan. Um, so I, I know they don't speak Hindi in, in Pakistan and, and Sri Lanka, but um, by far and away, most of our, our key consumers for, for Shivas Regal, whether it's the 12 or the 18 or the 25, it was Indian expats. So they were running businesses or, or in businesses wow. uh, over oh, there. Okay. And I didn't really get a lot of opportunity to speak to um, the Emiratis because it's not, alcohol is not part of their culture. They, Dubai as a, as a country has done an incredible job of attracting tourism and, and opening itself up. But for, for local people, yeah, um, they certainly wouldn't turn up to a whiskey event. Okay. Okay, so it's, so it's in the country, but it's really there for expats and yeah. tourists. Yeah. So every hotel, um, and there are lots of hotels in, in Dubai, uh, that's where you go to drink because only hotels can acquire a, an alcohol license. Uh, mm. The International Financial Centre was a slight exception to that. Um, but again, the license came under this this um, other body. But yes, to go to Dubai and drink, you should be in a hotel. Um, hmm. And uh, that's where I spent most of my time, either working with bars within the hotels or training staff that worked across outlets within within hotels. So most of my most of my time in Dubai was was training um, bar staff. It was it was a bit more trade focused. And if you wanted a drink or you wanted a bottle, is that are there? Liquor stores, or is it only on-premise? There are liquor stores, yeah. So Dubai has two distributors, and they each have their own liquor stores dotted around the city. Um, you could go into the Northern Emirates, uh, which is where I spent a lot of my time, which was a little bit more uh, Wild West. Um, just these uh, enormous yeah. liquor warehouses done up like airport duty freeze in the desert. Um, okay. First time I saw that, Wild. mind completely blown. But yeah. you, would, you would go up there... Um, if you're an expat and you knew about them, because that's where it was uh, a lot cheaper. Okay. Yeah. But lots of liquor stores within Dubai, uh, but they would be run by distributors, which I think sounds a bit more like the Canadian model or uh, or even the, the Swedish model, um, the Scandinavian okay. yeah, model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so two years doing that and then got to Shivas Brothers trying to trying to get your 15 minutes in here. Yeah, you're doing uh, great. After. And uh, yes, by and large, as I say, every every morning and afternoon we would get samples in from the sites or from um so i, I worked at kilmalid uh, which is where the main blending and a lot of the bottling happened and so every every day we would have anywhere between 40 and 50 samples of what's going down the line um that day or that week um and i did have some responsibility but but there was a team of 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 more, more people, uh, fortunately, to to make sure that nothing nothing slipped through. So there was myself and two other sample room technicians. There was my my uh, manager, the sample room team leader, two blenders, and uh, and the master blender, Sandy Hislop, uh, who was there as well. So oh. uh, plenty of opportunity um, to nose everything that we were doing. As I say, there was uh, trials that we were running, so I would be responsible for certain 
the, of those, making sure they were sampled on time, tasted, recorded. So as I say, quite similar to here when we've, we've got some, some unusual casks sitting in warehouses and we need to know how they're developing. So talk to us about this taking a whiskey down to 20% alcohol. Mm -hmm. Did you enjoy that? Did you see the value of that? Is it illustrative? Does it tell you more about that whiskey? What, what was your experience of the 20% the tastings? Like a lot of things, it, it takes a bit of time to get used to because as a drinker, um, I'm not drinking my whiskey at 20% uh, very often. So uh, because it was all uh, with the nose, um, it really does help. It, you know, the, the tulip-shaped glasses we've got, they really focus the aroma. So if you've got a lot of alcohol kicking about as well and you're trying to make the call between this, this standard, uh, this is what it should taste, uh, smell like, and this is uh, what we have. If you've got excess alcohol, because a lot of these samples were you know, low 60% ABV, you have to bring it down to something. And, and sure. 20% allowed, allowed the, the core flavors of the whiskey to come through and it allowed the alcohol just to fade into the background. Coming here, when we, we do a lot of nosing um, of uh, cask samples at um, full strength or 43, 46, it's, it's uh, a bit more uh, loose, but that was a bit of a shock because, wow, suddenly I am really am getting the, the alcohol. But again, you get used to it. But I think, you know, we have the luxury of time. We don't bottle things that often. At Shivers Brothers, they were bottling many products on a regular basis mm. and tens of thousands of cases. So you need to be able to make decisions pretty quickly. And mm. I think having it at 20% really allows anything that's different to just leap out. Um, and, uh, and yeah, there was times when, when that would happen and you could just isolate them and, and establish what the issue was. Sometimes it was just a, a sample bottle and, and you could just get it resampled and it was, it was okay. But yeah, we were there in the sample room, not really a laboratory. We had an on-site laboratory, but I don't have a science background. Um, okay, yeah, and, exactly. Right. We haven't so, actually covered that. Your background is? Yeah, I'm a, an English literature student. There you so, go. Um, There's hope for English literature students <laughs> all around the world. What can you do with a degree in literature? So um, become a whiskey, whiskey blender. Yeah. Whiskey blender. Uh, there, is, there is hope there. But yeah, if we, if we needed anything about uh, particular compounds that we were finding, we would send a sample down to the lab and they would, they would run the analysis there. Uh, in the sample room, as I say, it was, it was more sensory. Would you ever taste those samples at the 20% or was that for nosing purposes only? I would say 99.999% of the whiskies I encountered yeah. uh, would be uh, nosed. Yeah. But for new products, um, the tasting notes would be generated by the sample room team. So whoever was running the project would set up five or six classes, um, again, usually at 20% because um, we were just, just used to that. Um, and, uh, and we would taste those, but that was, yeah. Uh, not nowhere near as often as as uh, nosing. Okay, yeah, I always tend to find whiskey becomes quite flabby at twenty percent, and I have spoken to to people in the industry who are saying, no, some things will jump out at you. You will find new components down at twenty yeah, percent. My nose isn't there, either. and I'm, and, and it's, it's flaccid. It's right. Yeah. It's clearly not a skill you and I ever work on ever and so <laughs> ever. it really is no, no single cast nation at 20 percent. Yeah, low no, abv we, trend never we've just <laughs> never done yeah. it professionally new product line <laughs> yeah we just haven't dipped our toe in that you, you do get used to it as i say we're we're not looking at the whiskey from a um we, we know or we knew based on um the samples that this vatting sample will turn into a prep vat, will turn into a bottling vat, and we, we would taste it all the way through the process. 
And so long as the standard bottling of, say, Ballantyne's Finest at 20% knows it's the same as what's just gone down the line at 20%, then we're, we're, we're happy because we know that at full strength, uh, the consumer is, is going to be happy too. Huh. Interesting. Huh. A quick, very quick question, and then we can, we can pivot into Compass Box. Given what we'll say in our tastings about big batch releases, whether it be blend or single malt, we always talk uh, in the most kind of, you know, removed terms of consistency. And there's that need and there's that house recipe that does replicate. How difficult or easy, because I really don't know that side of the industry, is it to have that level of consistency from big batch to big batch? When you talk about Ballantine's finest, how easy or difficult is it to keep that consistent? I, I can just speak to, to my experience in, in the blending room, and I, I you know, wasn't privy to, to recipe tweaks or developments. Um, I do know that what, what came across the desk you know, with the, the Ballantine's finest, as, as, as we're talking about it, extremely consistent because you know again the beauty of many different cast types many different styles so you can swap in and out certain components as and when they are available sure without too big an issue but yeah some of the some of the still big batches but small batches uh compared to uh, some other products like you know an abalawa the age stated abalawas they would be piloted was was the term at, at shivers sampling every cask and making sure that if we bring this up to the percentages that will be replicated in the final batch, is it okay? And and yeah, tweaks would, would have to be made. Um, so consistency is a challenge. Yeah. It's something that, that everybody faces. And and for us at Compass Box now, it is that, that as John mentioned, that compelling quality. And, and you can use different things to arrive at that, but you know, something like the Peat Monster or, or Spice Tree or even the story of the Spaniard, People buy it time and time again, and they they expect that to to have a certain quality and character, yeah. and and we think that even if the precise flavour batch to batch will be different, and we publish you know what goes into um, each batch if people want to know, but even if there's subtle differences in flavour, there should be a commonality in quality. Mm. I had a question, and it's going back to something John had mentioned earlier where when you're creating a new blend, there's a spreadsheet that goes along with it. Can you describe the different entries on that spreadsheet and how you track the blend that you're creating? Absolutely. It, it's, it, it is as uh, mercifully, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a simple guy. It's, it's, it's a simple process for, for me to keep track of, which is, which is good. But it is just a case of, okay, this particular version as expressed, on this sheet in like a table with these percentages and these components not quite working. So you copy and paste into another sheet um, and it just spools out and you just say, okay, well, we're going to adjust this percentage but keeping the components the same. Or you say, well, I'm going to swap out this component, um, introduce this at the same percentage as its predecessor was. And, and yeah, as you taste through and we taste as a team, you see what's working and, uh, yeah. and gradually I can, I can show you juveniles is a really great example as, as components come in and go out and as percentages fluctuate. And, and as John said, it, in the case of affinity, it really does tell a story. Um, but yeah, sheet to sheet, 
you get this evolution as we as we try and zero in on the style that we're we're looking for. And and are batches small enough where you're referencing individual cask numbers, or is it here's this parcel of twelve year old Tianinic and eight year old Kleinleash and thirty year old Aberfeldy, uh, and there may be a few casks within that. It, it, like how in depth does does it tend to get, or would that change depending on the blend? So when we taste all the individual samples that you see around us, each of those will either represent uh, an exact cask. Well, they all ex represent exact casks, but sometimes we won't sample all of a parcel that's going into mm. our blends, but we'll sample a sizable proportion. Okay. So we say, if all of these are okay, we are, for the purposes of, of um, efficiency, we're going to say that the rest are okay too. Sometimes that doesn't work. You find a few oddities. It's like, right, we need to sample everything. <laughs> when it comes to our limited editions, every single cask will be sampled okay. just before bottling to make sure that the recipe is up to date because some of the representative samples we've got, so we'll take five samples from a parcel mm -hmm. and we'll use a composite of those five casks to stand for Milton Duff 1999 first of all yeah, yeah. but again if, if one of those casks when we're tasting it doesn't quite fit the profile it will be excluded so we can go down later on and say okay there was a slight variation with this cask in this parcel it's in the composite that's the only thing we can put down this prototype not working mm. as a result of so let's take it out and see what, what difference it makes so yeah one cask at a time can sometimes come into it more for limited editions and especially for hedonism than for um, something like um, peat monster, for example. Right, because peat will hide things and in grain there's nothing, nowhere for <laughs> things to hide. Yeah, I think, I think hedonism because it's such a specific style. Okay. And, and we want that, that hedonistic experience when yeah. people drink it. And just a couple of casks can give you that prickle that little bit mm. of alcohol prickle on the palate. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, 43% is 43%. Why is there a difference here? No, a couple of casks can actually spike out and, and give you that less than welcome yeah, drinking sure. experience. But Pete, no, you, you can still get some some ropey casks uh, and we, we try and uh, well, we keep those, those out as far as we can. Okay. Get out of here on the usual question that we now ask. What's James Saxon excited about with Compass Box in 2020? I am really excited about some of our... Uh, well, I'm excited about two things. I'm excited about a, uh, a new regular release for Compass Box. Ooh. So we've been working on that. I uh, can't say much more <laughs> about that at the moment. Um, but I'm also looking forward to uh, a couple of our limited editions, one which was created with Manny Monaghan, who has a bar in Leeds. He won The Circle last year. Um, and that has a, a very different approach to what we want in a whiskey. You were asking earlier about ideas and, and how does that inform the whiskey. This really was an idea and, and tried to make the whiskey fit that. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing how that's received mm. um, because, yeah, it's, it's a different whiskey to what we've um, put out more recently. And I think it will, it will generate a, a bit of interest and a bit of comment. 
but I'm looking forward to the next batch of casks that we get in. Because that the truth. That's that's the toy shop. Um, to, to Jason's point earlier. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, sir, and thank you for organizing today. We really, really appreciate, appreciate it. My pleasure, it. gents. Thank and you for spending some it. time getting to share the James Saxon story with the listeners. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you. thanks, as always, for all the support in listening and commenting and communicating with us as well. Our pl my pleasure. Thank Cheers, so buddy. Cheers, buddy. Thank you. Once again, thanks to James Saxon for speaking with us, but also for doing the heavy lifting in getting us to London so that we could interview mm. the good John Glazer mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so that we could have the extra time to learn more about James and his journey that's brought him to this remarkable point at what I consider to be a wonderful young age. Yeah, yeah, it was... It, <sighs> Personally, it was a treat getting to meet James, having known of him, having communicated with him back in his Scotch Odyssey days. And then we got to meet him last year at the Old and Rare show, yep. which, which was a treat. And, and then just getting to spend some time with him, not just in front of microphones, but, but also we, had, uh, we went out for drinks and a little food later that evening, too. So just... Having we a did. good little evening with him was a treat for me and a highlight of our trip, no doubt. Well, that and the fact that he is such a supporter of the podcast mm. uh, and will will shoot me messages on Instagram you know, about the latest episode and I heard this and I heard that. And to have, you know, we've experienced it many times, but we never take it for granted when industry folk tell us how much they enjoy our silly little pad cost. It really means the world to us. And and to have our, our listeners, our consumers, our our you know avid whiskey fans and industry folk all listening to our silliness really means the world. And uh, and James is a good lad and a good friend. And mm. and I thank him for his time and his his ability to assist us in being able to do both a full episode and a half episode focused on the world of Compass Box. Samesies. And now, because it's a half episode, yeah. we're out of here, Joshua. We're off That's back it. to work again. Yep, back to work. All right. Well, you yeah. do you. I'll do me. It was lovely, lovely seeing you for a, a very brief few moments. It, it was. Um, I'm going to clink these two things together and let people think that it's whiskey and not a coffee mug and a sample of oh of a Michael Bloom no it's a it's a Michael Bloom blend ah lovely yeah it's it's the uh, JRC Schlepper's blend Shep Schlepper's dram the Schlepper's dram what's well, left I'm, of it anyway I'm gonna clink with a sample bottle of Bowmore 1989 bottled for the 2018 Fashil you do you brother Cheerio two cherries O's. <laughs>